0: Welcome to the First Lutheran Church located at 512 South Kale Avenue in Miles City with pastoral services provided by Pastor Steve Rice. The Holy Gospel according to Mark, the 7th chapter, Mark writes, Jesus set out and went away to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know that he was there, yet he could not escape notice. But a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him and she came and bowed down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin. She begged Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. He said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For saying that, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. So she went home, found the child lying on the bed, and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went by way of Sidon toward the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. They brought to him a deaf man who had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to lay his hands on him. He took him aside in private away from the crowd, and put his fingers into his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. And then looking up to heaven, Jesus sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And immediately his ears were open, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Then Jesus ordered them to tell no one. But the more he ordered them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. They were astounded beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. The Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. I again bid you welcome on this Sunday morning. The sun's trying to come out. A little bit cloudy this morning, huh? A little bit cloudy uh, but overall, uh, a most beautiful autumn that is approaching us, uh, and I look forward to the coming the coming changing of the seasons and the uh, coming of the new seasons, both of the of the calendar and of the church year. Well, I want to begin with a, a keeping a promise that I made yesterday um, yesterday um, morning, I was at Pine Hills, uh, the youth correctional facility that we all know so well that not only has now Uh, juvenile offenders there but also adults and I divide my time between the juvenile side and the adult side Uh, and yesterday just turned out I was on the juvenile side and had uh, a group of young men uh, from ECHO unit ECHO uh, who spent time with me discussing and exploring what a bit of what I'm going to share with you today and uh, I provided them uh, our bulletin so they would have the lessons on the back and they were surprised that uh, uh, that I was the guy they heard on the radio, uh, and so I said to them, "Well, I'll say hi to you tomorrow on the radio, so you know it's really me." So, to the church youth in uh, Unit Echo, uh I bid you, as well as the congregation here, and those who are listening by means of the radio broadcast, can also listen by means of our podcast. Uh, a most sincere good morning. Well, I usually, as you know, reflect on uh, the morning's texts and, and choose the gospel lesson uh, for that reflection. This morning, I want to deviate just a little bit, and I want to uh, take a look at the epistle of, of James. Now, James is the second reading, and we've been reading from James for a little while. I uh, begin with an observation, kind of unusual for Lutherans to do uh, sermons from James, at least in a classical sense, as Martin Luther uh, spoke of James as the epistle of straw, uh, thinking that it was too works oriented and not enough, um, if you will, oriented towards faith and grace. Uh, but here it is. and certainly worthy of our consideration. Um, the uh, author of James employs both in fact and in figure the golden rule. And he does so as a kind, I'm going to suggest, of a centering mechanism. Okay, A centering mechanism uh, for the early church. He wrote before the Gospels were written. And so he didn't read in the Gospels, but rather this is what he understood uh, that would later also be reflected in the Gospels, uh, that the, the church and those of us who occupy it were to be a combination in healthy measure of both word and action. Word and action. Uh, Neither one, James, would contend complete without the other. Okay, Neither one complete without the other. Um, And again, that was then, this is now. So let's take a few minutes this morning and reflect upon whether or not this still holds relevant guidance for the church uh, today does this text help center us in our Christian faith we live in um, polarized times Uh, I noticed the line in the hymn we just sang uh, weary nations Uh, certainly we are a weary nation okay in part in spite of the enormity the abundance of what we have we are a weary nation and in part our weariness comes from our division our polarization Uh, And so is it possible to be a both-and, okay, to be a both-and church? And I think uh, James would suggest that's what we ought to strive for. He would say the church ought not be blown to the left uh, or to the right by the forces of the world in which we live. They come and go. We've been here for over 20 centuries. Uh, That is, we ought not be driven by a manic fascination with taking up every social justice cause that comes down the pike. okay. Nor, however, should the church ever be caught uh, flaccidly navel-gazing and drifting along with pious platitudes and nothing else. That puts us dangerously in peril of the sin of self-love okay, and isolates us in the world phrase you may have heard, we are meant to be in the world but not of the world. So it is that I'm going to contend that James centers the church. Centers the church. James gave voice to what followers of Jesus Christ ought to say and what they ought to do as expressions of their faith, recognizing that faith without works, physical expressions or manifestations would be figuratively dead in James' estimation. After all, he wrote, you do well if you really fulfill the law. You shall love your neighbors as yourselves. And conversely, James warned that those works, though, without faith, specifically specifically faith in Jesus Christ, would always be a new kind of Phariseeism, uh, a new kind of legalism. And so, uh, you know, one of the things that I I commend this congregation always have for is, you know, over the three decades that I've had uh, privilege to observe you, Observe us. Is that through those doors have come pillars of the community, to coin a phrase. Through those same doors, I've seen walk homeless people, uh, and both greeted and received uh, here with uh, with equal uh, equal love and grace. Uh, well done, you know. Well done to the church. Um, notice that Jesus said and these words will be familiar to you jesus said i say to you that listen i say to you that listen do unto others and I know you can probably finish that one can't you do unto others as you would have them do unto you this became the golden rule now notice though that that jesus prefaced it with i say to you who listen this is allowing that not everyone's going to listen um even as Jesus spoke these words, though, as he spoke them, his audiences, his hearers, would have known that he was drawing on an even older wisdom. Only he was taking that older wisdom and turning it on its head. Okay, he was saying it in the affirmative rather than the negative, and I and I commend that to you. In every challenge that we face, and that we're going to face together uh, in in the future, let's look at it from the affirmative perspective rather than the destructive or more negative perspective. Jesus says. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. He drew upon and perfected that which is found in Proverbs. Do not say, I will do to others as they have done to me. I will pay them back for what they have done. Jesus takes that same sentiment, but notice how he turns it and gives it a positive cast. He was setting the higher bar, um, fulfilling scripture, fulfilling it in himself. And so that having been said now, permit me uh, to uh, draw one last time, uh, I promise, on analogies that were kind of half-baked at least while we were on vacation. Uh, in California these few weeks ago. I shared last week about our little Pharisee. Remember uh, last Sunday, if you were here or if you weren't, uh, last Sunday the text was the condemnation, the criticism that came from the Pharisees because Jesus' disciples were eating without first having properly, formally, and according to the law washed their hands. Um, and Jesus was critical of that. He says, you Pharisees are more interested in things that don't ultimately matter uh, and far more interested in the things that are easy to occupy your time with. And I, I observed that we had our own little Pharisee with us while we were traveling on vacation, living out of motel rooms frequently. And You know how bathroom and bedroom kind of, and that's all you get, kind of adjo- join each other and uh, five-year-old Dee, all three feet, 40 pounds of her, Uh, Having spent two years in our Let Me Shine preschool, she learned well, uh, for the morning ritual was fairly uh, unerring for her. Uh, If you walk out of the bathroom early in the morning, uh, she would confront you and ask you, Did you brush your teeth? Did you wash your hands with soap? Did you dry them? And uh, she was very caught up in those kind of very—I would call them Pharisaic—kind of things, good things to be sure. But in her world, you know, she was she was very impressed with the law, and she wanted to share that law with everyone else. While we we all know that every once in a while she would commit perhaps greater faux pas than that. But then again, you don't hold those things against a five-year-old. So what we're going to do is take a look at another analogy uh, that occurred to me. Uh, as we were vacationing in California. And among the things we did was a much anticipated uh, uh, meal at one of our favorite restaurants. It's in Santa Cruz, uh, and it sits right on the mouth of the harbor into Monterey Bay uh, there in Santa Cruz. And one of the things that we knew we wanted to do there was uh, have a meal to include calamari, from the Crow's Nest restaurant, and yes, calamari is deep-fried squid, and I know that's somewhat of a heresy uh, in cattle country, but it's quite tasty at least there. And one night, uh, we talked about it as we drove cross-country, uh, and one night uh, uh, we we made our way there, and as the sun long rays began to suggest it was going to set in the west, we were fortunate enough to have a seaside view, and. Uh, As we sat there, you could see the effects of the restless evening breeze, which I would call more of a darn cold, stiff wind chill off the ocean. It it blew. Uh, It blew as it does every night there uh, as a steady procession of small white sailboats made their way out of their slips and out of the harbor and into the deeper waters of Monterey Bay. this consisted of dozens of crisp white sails uh, on those uh, sailboats, and they paraded from the security of their slips into the bay. And as they moved, I could not help, as a Montanan at least, be fascinated at how the tall masts remain remarkably straight and upright, okay? Like soldiers on parade. Even the swirls and the eddies of wind that swept across the mouth of the harbor did not seem to affect them. Now, watching these sailboats, I realized that while the canvas sail might be subject to the whims of the ever changing wind, the boat itself obviously need not be. If it were so, I suppose a sailboat could only sail one direction downwind, huh? Downwind, and worse. In the event of a sudden gust, that boat could be just laid right down upon the water and perhaps sink. This reality, of course, that, uh, uh, that the capricious wind could do catastrophic damage in short order uh, to a boat would have compounded the terror of those who on occasion uh, sailed the Sea of Galilee, a shallow freshwater lake, uh, the one upon which our Lord walked uh, when one of the frequent storms Uh, threatened the the boat in which the disciples were sailing, Uh, and it's because those boats were shallow, draught, flat bottom, and they had a sail but nothing else. And when the wind started blowing, they were in trouble, and they knew it. And so as I watched, it impressed me that these sailboats, these boats powered by the wind, uh, they weren't at all tossed about. So what kept the sailboats upright, even in this wind? Well, the answer... Came to understand was something unseen. Okay, the power was something unseen, powerful and hidden, deep beneath the waves. Beneath the waves. And that something was the keel. I've tried to do some research because I'm not a nautical guy. It was sometimes called the dagger board, or, and for our purposes today, let's call it the center board. The British spell it funny, but it's like center and board. Um, and uh, uh, I think it was actually a Brit that invented it. Uh, and so the centerboard, and the centerboard resides uh, as a kind of a giant fin under the sailboat. Okay. Now Peter, James, and John's fishing boats—they had sails, but no centerboards and such. As I say, you could—I you know—I can understand how. A, Uh, 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 a very uh, uh, capricious wind uh, could threaten such a sailboat in short order because without this modern addition the peril of any strong wind would would certainly be compounded but the centerboard I learn acts as a counterforce a counterforce to even the most determined of winds above winds that blow well Jesus' words to Nicodemus the wind blows where it will doesn't it You know, you can see where, you don't know where it's coming from, you don't know where it's going, but you see its effects, Jesus told Nicodemus, and you can't control them. Uh, The modern day mariner or any mariner no more than Nicodemus can control the wind, but the wind can be used, and the wind can be manipulated toward the goal of going where the master of the ship wants that sailboat to go. Deep under the water, silent, unseen. The centerboard prevents the sailboat from being blown, either left or right, by those fickle, capricious forces of nature. A strong right or starboard wind and the keel, the centerboard deep beneath, exerts a powerful resistance, and it yields only slowly and allows only gradual lean of the sailboat, even as the rudder steers the direction the captain wants to go. Steady ahead, slow, gentle, sure progress. It's the product of a well balanced sailboat. And so I'm going to suggest, as I said to the boys at Pine yesterday, and I'm going to ask the question what's your centerboard? Do you have a centerboard? I mean, I suggested to some of them, they didn't have much of a centerboard, maybe little teeny ones, but I uh, wanted to see them grow their centerboards so that the the fickle nature of life and the capricious nature of their world, okay? Our world out there, blowing left and blowing right and seeking to tip you over, has less capacity to affect you. Because you have a centerboard that resists those sudden gusts and yields only slowly and measured ways carefully and with calculation of the one in control of the, of the boat. You're the boat. Okay, the moral of the story is that neither the individual person nor I'm going to suggest the church ought to be It is not good that we be blown about by the ever-changing winds that surround us It is not a good thing that every passing fad catches us up and propels us along with reckless speed Again, Jesus reminded Nicodemus the wind blows where it will. We can't control that. Left, right, our sails get filled. But what keeps us steady on and on course is the centerboard. The centerboard. For the church, there is a powerful, if unseen, force that keeps the church centered, keeps us upright. There is something that has kept us so. As the church from being blown about over now, well, 20 centuries. 20 centuries. And I submit to you, in those 20 centuries, empires have come and gone. That centerboard is Christ. Okay? There may well be other planks in your centerboard, but it's fundamentally Christ. I said to the boys at Pine Hills uh, that they need to be building their centerboards. Part of why they are where they are is because they've been blown about, battered left and right, and what they need is some stability so they can have then direction. Our centerboard. You know, Paul understood the perils of the sea, didn't he? The Apostle Paul. He was shipwrecked no less than three times, at least three times. And he spoke of the peril of the world's ever-changing winds uh, in, uh, in his uh, letter to the uh, Ephesians. And let's begin by observing. If Christ was the same yesterday, today, and forever, the faith and practice of his church, how, how could it be the first and fastest to change? Well, people change. Sometimes suddenly, and governments absolutely—we we can change politics with an election, can't we? The church was not intended to operate in such a manner. Uh, not to intended to operate in the same way. What constitutes the church's centerboard? Okay, is Christ? Is Christ? So Paul wrote to the Ephesians. Words of counsel that I think are again. 20 centuries later, pretty darn appropriate. We must no longer be children. I think of the youth at Pine Hills, huh? Tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming. We must not be blown about. What prevents us? From being blown about is our centerboard of life, in life. Therefore, as a church that proclaims <laughs> Lutherans huh, as one of its core tenets, sola scriptura, scripture alone, let us always hold change, whether coming as a, a gentle breeze or a forceful gust, uh, to the same test that the church has for its history and ask how does what is proposed square with scripture. How does what is proposed square with the creeds, our confessions? If we do this, we will better accomplish what James and, moreover, Jesus Christ called the church to be and to do faithful, steadfast, stable, not tribal, not political, not a knockoff of the secular, even if well intentioned organizations. I sometimes ask our children will again when blast resumes midweek 19th i think is our start date you know what makes us different when we go to the va to visit those uh uh, veterans at the va what makes us different from the 4-h ffa boy scouts and girl scouts what makes us different what makes us different is we do it in christ's name we do it in christ's name we take nothing from them But he is the one that centers us so that we're not just words, but we're also actions. But we have to remember that our actions are to be reflective of our words and vice versa. Okay, We are to be the church against which Jesus said, not the gates of hell will prevail against. Well, I'm going to suggest to you not prevail does not mean go unchallenged or uncontested. We must seek always to be hearers first. And then, based upon what we've heard and what we have learned, doers of the word, James cautioned against being either one without the other. What will we do that reflects this all-important counsel of our scriptures? That, my friends, is for the living of these days and the days to come. Time will tell. And so I say to you, steady on, steady on even in today's ever-shifting winds. Do not go flitting about like a leaf skittering across a pond by the autumn breezes because one will have direction and purpose and the other, well, it's been spent and will be gone come springtime. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this production of the First Lutheran Church. We welcome you to visit us in person at 512 Kale Avenue. You can also find us on Facebook at First Lutheran Church, Miles City, Montana, and email us at flc at midrivers.com.